Today's binge mode is brought to you by Dell. The Dell XPS 13 with an Intel Core i7 processor is the laptop for people who never say no to one more episode. With lifelike color, brilliant sound clarity, and smooth streaming. Oh! Dell Cinema Technology makes whatever you love to watch <sighs> even better. Call 800 by Dell to learn more. Visit dell.com slash Dell Cinema. Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. Yes, honey. <laughs> it does. If you've ever wondered what it would be like to drink the elixir of the chosen one, <laughs> tastes delicious. Mm, golden. It's, that's a problem for you. You might want to check out one of the other fine podcasts from the Ringer Podcast Network. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why, probably for the first time ever, Fleur Delacour is worried about looking... Idiots. Idiots. <laughs> Please proceed with extreme caution. And now binge mode. Don't you want to take a last look at the place? He asked Hedwig, who was still sulking with her head under her wing. We'll never be here again. Don't you want to remember all the good times? I mean, look at this doormat. What memories? Dudley puked on it after I saved him from the Dementors. Turns out he was grateful after all. Can you believe it? last summer, Dumbledore walked right through that front door. Harry lost the thread of his thoughts for a moment and Hedwig did nothing to help him retrieve it, but continued to sit with her head under her wing. Harry turned his back on the front door. And under here, Hedwig. Harry pulled open a door under the stairs. Is where I used to sleep. You never knew me then. Ply me, it's small I'd forgotten. Welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. Yeah. I'm Mally Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. A great website. It's just a fantastic website. It's bigger and better than ever. Please read it. Joining me today, now that he's had me change the mm. sheets and muck the chickens and denome the garden and degrease the oven. Just because he doesn't want me to chat with Isaac and I'm Cram. just trying to keep you away from them because you guys are plotting things. <laughs> we'll find a way. It's Ringer Senior Creative. Your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Mel? Yeah. It's wedding season. And it's also time for Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether you're the broom, festival, or bike riding type, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us five points and stars for Binge Mode. Also, go ahead and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans, which is an excellent place to discuss the best air freshener from asking the essence of ghoul. Please also head down to the ringer.com slash shop to check out our new binge mode merch. Ideal wear for frantic aerial escape attempts. Comfy. Comfy. You're dodging defeaters. Fit well. And you look great. <laughs> Last time. On Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how Fallout shapes the opening three mm. chapters of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters four through six of the seventh and final book in the Harry Potter saga. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always, 
while those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep. <laughs> 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 On details from all seven books and eight films and the wider Potter canon. Oh. Taking the entire series into account from the moment we climb into the sidecar. Mm. So push the green button and the purple one too, because it's time to head away from Privet Drive. Mal, it won't matter. Isaac can't say anything either, because apparently you can't once the fungus has spread to your uvula. <laughs> but since we can still speak, Let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Hallows chapters 4 through 6 by climbing word. This guy is Steve Edger to plot the Hogwarts Express. After the Dursleys depart, 13 friends arrive at Privet Drive to help Shepherd Harry to safety. Thanks to Snape's intel, Voldemort and company know tonight is the night and lie in wait. But the polyjuice aided seven-parter part of the plan gives the order a fighting chance. A mad chase mad. ensues. And when Voldemort arrives, Harry's wand acts of its own accord to keep its master safe. Not everyone is so lucky to survive, though. Hedwig perishes in her cage. Phoenix Song! Dear, sweet Hedwig. Dear, 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 sweet Hedwig, who was not nearly as appreciated as she should have been. A good and faithful friend. An unbelievably faithful friend. Please pet her and let her eat in the afterlife. Protect Hedwig forevermore. And Mad-Eye Moody dies at the hands of the Dark Lord himself after the coward Mungdungus Fletcher disapparates mid-flight. Stunning turn of events that the guy with the word dung in his name can't believe it. Wound up at least disappointing. If Moody had to go in battle, he'd want to go that way. It's true. Phoenix Song for Alistair Moody, a great, proud warrior. Our remaining friends regroup at the burrow where plans for Bill and Flora's impending nuptials and for Harry, Hermione, and Ron's upcoming Horcrux hunt commence. Mal, you think I'm going to let six podcasts risk their lives? Because it's the first time for all of them. This is different! Pretending to be binge mode. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters four through six of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows is The Cost of War. Chapter 4, The Seven Potters. With the Dursleys gone, Harry collects his bag, his broom, and Hedwig's cage. Gives his bedroom one last look before heading downstairs. Quote, It felt most strange to stand here in the silence and know that he was about to leave the house for the last time. Privet Drive has never been a happy home for Harry. But until he went to Hogwarts, it was the only home he'd known. The only one he could remember. He's now spent 16 years there, many in the dark about his own identity, then many more resenting the imprisonment he didn't understand, and then his final fully informed summers resigned to waiting out the ticking clock, ceaselessly watching the pot of his torment and wondering if it would ever actually boil. He reflects now on the rare times when he was a boy and would find himself alone in the Dursley's house, eager to take advantage of the precious private hours to sneak food or a go with Dudley's toys, or control of the TV. Quote, It gave him an odd, empty feeling to remember those times. It was like remembering a younger brother whom he had lost. This is a crushing line 
One, like so many others in Deathly Hallows, that takes us deep inside Harry's head and heart, positioning us on the edge of his increasingly acute observations about his own life. Here, he stands across a chasm forged by his own experience, looking back at the boy he used to be, and he does not recognize him. He's changed too much, suffered too much. There's an echo here from a line in Chamber of Secrets when Harry kept harping on the diary without understanding why. Quote, And while Harry was sure he had never heard the name T.M. Riddle before, it still seemed to mean something to him, almost as though Riddle was a friend he'd had when he was very small and had half forgotten. But there, the forgotten former life spoke to the part of Harry buried deep within, the secret horcrux unknown to him in the present day. It was something familiar that he longed to fully grasp, not something as he's experiencing here that seems newly unrecognizable to him. Here, he's looking across time not just to a former life, but to what feels like someone else's life entirely. Harry's reflections as he strolls through Privet Drive feel of a piece with what he said to Ginny at the end of Prince, as he explained why they couldn't be together. Quote, It's been like, like something out of someone else's life these last few weeks with you. Harry feels removed from normalcy, separated by the sorrows he carries and the tasks that await. On the brink of the battle for the fate of the wizarding world, the idea of caring about playing on a computer seems so insignificant, so small. But Harry's introspection isn't meant to trivialize. It's a lament. That empty feeling a reflection of the routine pleasures and indulgences to which Harry no longer believes he has access. We used to joke so often about how Harry obsessed over Quidditch and girls instead of focusing on the task at hand. But this, this is what the inverse looks like. It's the hollowness forged when his crushing burden pushed everything else away. He continues his farewell with the home that never felt like one by nudging Hedwig, who's still sulking with her head under her wing, to take one last look at the place. He says, we'll never be here again. Don't you want to remember all the good times? He mentions Dudley puking on the doormat after the Dementor attack and Dumbledore walking through the front door in his old quarters, the cupboard under the stairs. He says, under here, Hedwig, is where I used to sleep. You never knew me then. Blimey, it's small. I'd forgotten you, man. Harry's taking Hedwig and himself on a tour of his memories as much to say goodbye to that time in his life as to remind himself that it existed. The very halls of the house have become a scrapbook, relics of a time long past. And as he walks the halls and flips through those scrapbook pages, readers are transported back, too, to when we first met Harry with his untidy hair, his knobbly knees, and his enforced isolation in a space meant for the umbrellas and boots he's now gazing down upon. He didn't know who he was then, hadn't yet learned what fame and expectations awaited. Now he can't remember who he was. But even then, as Harry recalls here, he dreamed of the truth, the green lights, the cold laugh, the flying motorbike. He's never really been able to escape the truth of his life. His reflections are interrupted by a deafening roar. And he moves to the kitchen to see person after person appear in the back garden, their disillusionment charms expunged. Hagrid's there on the very motorbike Harry was just recalling, and people are all around him on brooms and thestrels. Fittingly, Hermione and Ron and Hagrid are the first of the assembled to greet Harry, who's stunned by how many people he sees. Change of plan, Moody growls, before <laughs> demanding that they all get undercover. In the kitchen, Harry looks around at everyone who came to help him. Ron, Hermione, Fred and George, Bill, Arthur, Mad-Eye, Tonks, Lupin, Fleur, mm. Kingsley, Hagrid, and Dung. Fletch. From the book, Harry's heart seemed to expand and glow at the sight. He felt incredibly fond of all of them. 
This kind of gesture would lift the spirit at any time, but think of the contrast now this mass arrival makes the remembrances Harry was just sifting through. Those were times of isolation and loneliness and longing. This is a time of danger and despair, but also of banding together, of being united by a common goal. Kingsley might not have had uh, time for Vernon Dursley, but he has time for Harry Potter. I thought you were looking after the Muggle Prime Minister, Harry asks. He can get along without me for one night, Kingsley replies. This simultaneously hilarious and grounding reminder of Harry standing as a figure of paramount importance in the wizarding world mixes immediately and jarringly and delightfully with tales from everyday life. Lupin and Tonks, we learn, got married. This is a shocking but wonderful thing. Remember how Harry greeted the reminder from Ron at the end of Half-Blood Prince that the trio would have to head to the borough for Bill and Fleur's wedding before setting out to hunt Horcruxes. Harry thinks at the time, quote, Harry had looked at him, startled. The idea that anything as normal as a wedding could still exist seemed incredible and yet wonderful. And remember, too, what Harry thinks and feels as he closes his hand around the fake locket and thinks about the quest that awaits. Quote, he felt his heart lift at the thought that there was still one last golden day of peace left to enjoy with Ron and Hermione. For someone like Harry, who feels the weight of the world on his shoulders and feels as separate from his own past and regular routines as he's ever felt from anything— This dissonance is stunning, and yet it's also a tonic for the soul, a powerful reminder that life can and does go on, that even those in the fight can still find love, and that the people he's working so hard to protect are building something meaningful on the strength of his courage. You got married, Harry yelped. Yelped. He can't even contain his joy. There's no time for this kind of chatter, as Moody reminds them, and the event itself had to be quiet, Lupin says. But the joy is palpable in the room. No one standing there knows how little time Tonks and Lupin have left. They just know how much time they wasted wondering, letting their worry rule them. And now at last, they're together, refusing to bow to fear or doubt. Moody's not much for wedding chit-chat. We'll have time for a cozy catch-up later. Moments like this remind us of how fragile, how tenuous our grasp on life is. It always feels like there's time for another conversation, but sometimes there just isn't. And we can't know that. We can only try to make the most of every moment. And here we see how those in Harry's life care enough about him to try to help him make the most of every moment that he has. The new plan snapped into place because the thickness went over to the dark side. Seeing that the Order knows that gives us a lot of heart. We had to wonder in the wake of Dumbledore's death how well-positioned the Order would be to combat the enemy. Their ability to detect that a high-ranking ministry member has fallen gives us hope. They're still on the case, though perhaps anyone would be. Not exactly hard to spot something off when the thickness makes connecting Privet Drive to the flu network, operating from there, or placing a port key there, an imprisonable offense all of a sudden. Bit of a tell. Yeah. But hey, they're on it when it comes to moving Harry, too. The requisite caveat being that Plan B here came from Snape. So a mixed bag, to be fair— He's on their side, ultimately planting these seeds with Dung Fletch to give Harry the best chances of surviving the night, but Dung still fell susceptible to Snape's confundus charm. If Snape hadn't really been working, as we'll later learn, on Dumbledore's orders, this would have been a tragic infiltration of the ranks. But hey, they're trying, and trying matters. Thickness, we'll learn, is pretending these protections are to stop Voldemort from getting in. Really, they're to keep Harry from getting out. Mm Mm-hmm. And since he's still not 17, he has the trace on him, which detects magical activity around those who are underage. Remember, 
Dobby's hover charm, it doesn't have to be Harry casting the magic. It's anyone around him who uses magic and the ministry will know and act. They can't wait for the trace to break when he turns 17 because then Lily's protection, which protects the house, will also break. From the book, Pius Thickness thinks he's got you cornered good and proper, Moody says. And Harry's like, doesn't he? (laughs) But no, they don't need to cast spells or tap into ministry monitor transit methods in order to fly. They're going to use brooms, thestrals, and Hagrid's motorbike to escape. Moody reminds him that Lily's charm will only break once he turns 17 or stops calling this place home. Harry and the Dursleys' farewell, we realize, had real consequences. Parting with the understanding that Harry would never live here again means that when he next leaves, the charm will be broken. And the Order is choosing to break it early rather than wait for Voldemort to arrive the instant Harry comes of age. They believe they have a real advantage here. Voldemort, Moody says, doesn't know they're moving Harry tonight. Now, this will prove, thanks to Snape's intel, to be false. They do have the real date do have a horde of Death Eaters in place. Snape's delicate dance involves passing along enough real intel to maintain his station, and then doing enough with his dung corruption and interactions to try to keep the people whose side he's really on alive. Moody doesn't think it will be easy, though. Even believing they have an edge regarding the date, he says to expect you-know-who to have guards on the prowl. Thus, they're putting protections on a dozen houses so that the Death Eaters, should they arrive, won't know their real destination. His house, Kingsley's house, Aunt Muriel's house, etc. Houses associated with the Order. Harry will be going to Tonks' parents. From there, he'll take a port key to the borough. And Harry at last voices his concern. Even if they don't know which of the houses is the real destination, won't they once 14 of them fly toward it? Ah, glad you asked, Harry. Moody says, I forgot to mention the key point. 14 of us won't be flying to Tonks' parents. There will be seven Harry Potters moving through the skies tonight, each of them with a companion, each pair heading for a different safe house. He pulls a flask of Polyjuice Potion from his cloak. No, Harry protests loudly. No way. He doesn't want the assembled risking their lives for him in this way, just as Hermione had apparently predicted. Quote, because it's the first time for all of us, Ron says. Pretty amusingly, it must be said here. Yes. Actually pretending to be Harry, though, Harry says, is different. More dangerous than just standing by his side. Voldemort wants Harry dead. But Ron's point is the key one. While Harry's worry for his friends is, as always, a heartwarming instinct, the people in that room long ago began to pay the costs of war. Harry's strength comes from his choices and his courage, but his friends get to choose, too. Just as Ron and Hermione said to him in Prince, we'll be there, Harry, Ron said. There was time to turn back if we wanted to. We've had time, haven't we, Hermione said. They all know the potential cost, and they're willing to pay it. Everyone here is overage, Potter, Moody says, and they're all prepared to take the risk. It is no accident that that direct line, that direct acknowledgement of the stakes, comes from the man who will fall during the course of this escape mission from Mad-Eye Moody. Harry needed to hear, before Moody perished, that Moody and everyone else knew the risk and chose to take it anyway because they believed it worth doing, because it was worth it far more than a life absent the chance to make a choice like that at all. Notably, Moody's stirring speech doesn't seem to resonate with everyone. Mundungus Fletcher. Not into it. Weirdly, not into it. (laughs) Shrugs and grimaces, actions that presage his impending, cowardly flight from the battle. 
when Harry presses once more that there is no need to put everyone in such overt danger. Moody says, our only chance is to use decoys. Even you know who can't split himself into seven. (laughs) Harry catches Hermione's eye here in this moment, perhaps more than the ensuing fierce demand from Moody for Harry's hair, pushes him to concede at last. Voldemort, of course, can and has split himself into seven. Harry, Hermione, and Ron are the only ones in the room, of course, who know that. But that's what this is all about, finding the Horcruxes. The self-inflicted mutilation of Voldemort's soul that has tethered him to this world, the secret barrier to really stopping him at last. There will be tolls to pay along the road to that final showdown. There have been so many already to this point, and this is another one. Harry, at last, upon this inadvertent reminder on Moody's part of the stakes and how very long the road to victory still is, relents and pulls out a chunk of his hair and drops it into Moody's potion, where it, quote, began to froth smoke, and then all at once, it turned to clear, bright gold. Ooh, you look much tastier than crab and goyle, Harry, (laughs) said Hermione. Indeed! Slurp it up! Said Hermione before catching sight of Ron's raised eyebrow blushing slightly and saying, oh, you know what I mean. Yeah, we do. The chosen one being a bright gold smoothie from your local L.A. juice shop while Crab and Goya look like literal bogeys and (laughs) dung is too fucking perfect. Drink up, everyone, to the chosen one. Ron, Hermione, Fred, George, Fleur, and Dung are the six decoy Harrys. Dung doesn't line up until Hagrid makes him. Another very red waving flag. At this point, sub him out. Yeah, like let's get Dung <laughs> out. Him out. Let's get a, let's get another starter in there. Dung said he'd prefer to be a protector. Left unsaid, only of his own person. Uh-huh. Moody reminds him that the protectors will be in the most danger. That's why the best fighters of the group are taking those rules. Voldemort, remember, will not want another Death Eater to kill Harry. He wants to do it himself. Anyone else could fall in the fog of war. The Polyjuice Potion, Essence of Chosen One, House mm. Blend, is dispensed, and everyone drinks at once. The six fake Harrys transform. Wow, we're identical, Fred and George say to each other. <laughs> Love those two. Such a great run for them. And then the comedy continues when Floor says, Bah! <laughs> After looking at her reflection in the microwave, Bill, don't look at me. I'm idiots. Tough! Look for our guy, Harry Potter. Continues. I look like the baby. Oh, my God. (laughs) Bill, don't look at me. I look like this little ugly baby. (laughs) Just let Voldemort have him. Oh, my God. (laughs) Bill, how does your sister fuck this? (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Moody, unconcerned with whether or not they look hideous, (laughs) has clothes and glasses and luggage and owl cages for all of the decoys. Harry watches as everyone derobes and puts on their disguises. Quote, he felt like asking them to show a little more respect for his privacy as they all began stripping off with impunity, clearly much more at ease with displaying his body than they would have been with their own. Oh my God, is this what it looks like? It's terrible, even worse than I thought. <laughs> my God. <laughs> this, coupled with Hermione immediately just savagely dunking on Harry's eyesight. It's fucking everybody's like, wow. I know. Forces us to again consider what an intrusion yes. the use of polyjuice is on someone's yes. privacy. This scene obviously plays for comedy, but this is invasive. Once each fake Harry is dressed, 
bespectacled and armed with backpacks and owl cages containing fake stuffed headwigs. It's very, very tough. Moody reveals the pairs. Dung and Moody on brooms. Why am I with you? Grunted the Harry nearest the back door. Because you're the one that needs watching, Moody says to Dung. How right he will prove to be. Arthur is with Fred, Lupin with George, Bill's with Fleur on a Thestral, and Harry is briefly repulsed to see the look on his face as he watches Fleur gazing adoringly up at her future husband. Kingsley is with Hermione on a Thestral, and we must say here, fucking dream team. Kingsley and Hermione as a pair? Incredible. Then, Tonks and Ron. Quote, Ron did not look quite as pleased as Hermione. Juan Juan, Tonks is a fucking auror. You're paired with an auror heading into a potential battle. What are you complaining about? Harry, then, is with Hagrid. On the motorbike. Brooms and Thestrals can't take Hagrid's weight, Hagrid says. This means Harry will be in the sidecar. Quote, that's great, said Harry, not altogether truthfully. Moody seems to read the unspoken resentment in Harry's words, offering up that they are sure the Death Eaters will believe Harry to be the one on a broom, given his expertise as a flyer, his Quidditch prowess. This, of course, doesn't make Harry feel any better for a couple reasons. First, if they're expecting the Death Eaters to chase, quote, one of the potters who look at home on a broomstick, as Moody says here, that just means that the people Harry is already so worried for, already feeling so guilty about seeing in harm's way for his sake, are actually going to be in even more danger than him, not just equal danger. This is not something that Harry can stomach. And then, of course, there's the fact that Harry wants to be on the front lines. There's a lot about Harry's life that's been begrudging. A lot of that got-to language that Dumbledore tried to get him to see and move beyond. But when it's time for the fight, Harry wants to be on the front lines. It's his instinct. It's his nature. Truly his desire. He wants to save people. He wants to find courage in his fear and defend those who can't defend themselves. The idea of being relegated to a sidecar, a literal sidecar, deprived of full agency and control, not only not free to zoom about on his broom and challenge all foes, but totally beholden to someone else's guidance is unbearable for him and a little embarrassing. Contrary to so much about how he lives his life, it's for his own good, of course, yes, but that doesn't mean it feels good. Moody tells them they have three minutes not to bother locking the back door. Small choices and statements like this really remind us of what Harry is up against and what the situation is. Locking our doors at night makes us feel safer, but for Harry, a locked door might as well be a jello mold. So easy would it be for any flow to slice through it. Harry grabs his things and everyone gets into their positions on their mounts. Is this it? Harry asks. Is this Sirius's bike? It is, Hagrid says. And the last time he was on it, Harry, I couldn't fit in one hand. This connection to Sirius is beautiful. A bridge to the past and to someone Harry surely wishes could be there with him now. But Harry, quote, could not help but feel a little humiliated as he got into the sidecar. He's feet below everyone else and Ron's smirking at him. The comment from Hagrid is an immensely touching reminder of how Hagrid pulled Harry from the rubble of Godric's Hollow and spirited him away to Privet Drive. And of what a bookend moment this is. The two of them on the bike again, riding away from Lily's enchantment. And this phase of Harry's life instead of toward it. But Harry doesn't want to feel small now. He wants to feel in control. He shoves his bag and broom by his feet and puts Hedwig's cage between his knees. From the book, it was extremely uncomfortable. A physical manifestation of a bystander's role he doesn't want to occupy. But there's some good news. Hagrid tells Harry that Arthur's done a bit of tinkering 
And he points at a purple button, which Arthur says he isn't sure was advisable and is only to be used in emergencies. Welcome to the story, Chekhov's purple button. You think that button's going to be pressed? Guess what? It's going to get pressed. (laughs) Moody reminds them that they have to leave at exactly the same time or the whole plan is foiled. Ron throws Lupin a guilty look as he wraps his arms around (laughs) Tonk's delicious waist. The motorbike, quote, roared like a dragon as Hagrid kicks it into life. Moody wishes everyone luck again and tells them he'll see them at the borough, a promise he sadly will not be able to keep. On the count of three, one, two, three. Harry feels the sidecar rise into the air. He's so uncomfortable that he almost forgets to look back at Privet Drive one final time. When he finally does, he can no longer tell which house is which. They're all blending together. A fitting final view of the house where what made Harry special was so often repressed and where his keepers wanted so desperately to blend in that they feared anything that was different or could make them different. Recall what we discussed in the very first episode of this podcast. J.K. Rowling named the street after the privet bush that surrounds many British homes because she wanted to convey something standard, typical, totally ubiquitous. Harry is not that. As he reflected to himself in Order of the Phoenix after hearing the prophecy that caused Voldemort to go after him all those years ago, quote, he was, he had always been, a marked man. And as that marked man and 13 people trying to ensure that he survives rise higher and higher into the air, away from that swath of muggle sameness below, quote, out of nowhere, out of nothing, they were surrounded. At least 30 hooded figures are circling in the air, right where the Order members just rose. Chaos ensues. There's no time to talk, no room for planning. Just the crushing instant reality that they've flown into the jaws of the very thing they were working so hard to avoid. There are screams and blazes of green light. Hagrid yells and the bike rolls over. And Harry clings to the sidecar as Hedwig's cage, his firebolt, and his bag slip out. No, Hedwig, he shouts. The broomstick falls to the earth, but Harry saves the bag and saves Hedwig whom it was his first instinct to protect. Quote, a second's relief, and then another burst of green light. The owl screeched and fell to the floor of the cage. No, Harry shouts, no. Passage continues. The motorbike zoomed forward. Harry glimpsed hooded Death Eaters scattering as Hagrid blasted through their circle. Hedwig, Hedwig. The owl lay motionless and pathetic as a toy on the floor of her cage. He could not take it in, and his terror for the others was paramount. This is a terrifying, agonizing moment. The loss of a pet is a terrible burden that leaves a mark forever. Harry has lost so much and so many, and each death robs him of something elemental. Hedwig's death feels particularly tragic because she was a passenger, a bystander, a prisoner in a cage, just like Harry had so often been in his own life. Hedwig wanted to fly free. That her death occurred in a moment when she was confined, unable to stretch her wings and soar through the air, adds an extra layer of misery to a loss that would rip out our hearts no matter when and how it occurred. When Harry took Hedwig on a tour of Privet Drive earlier in this chapter, saying his farewell to her as well as the house, even though he didn't realize it at the time, we were forced to think about how much of Harry's life took place before Hedwig and Magic entered it. But Hedwig and Magic are in many ways one and the same for Harry. He got Hedwig on his first trip into Diagon Alley. She helped him soar into the magical world. It was his constant companion from there on. Whether at Hogwarts or Privet Drive, a grim old place at the borough at the Leaky Cauldron. Wherever Harry went, Hedwig found him. 
And whomever he needed her to find, she found too. She nipped at his fingers with love and remonstration. She shared his juice and food. She nurtured him in times of need and pushed him to be more thoughtful. She was, in other words, his family, a bright white light in his increasingly dark life. She was proud and good and brave, a soldier in her own right, his friend. And now her watch has ended. Harry can't bear another loss. He wants to turn around to help the others. He puts Hedwig's cage on the floor, refusing to believe that she's dead. Hagrid refuses to turn back, of course. His job is to get Harry to safety. He has to honor that mission. Otherwise, the deaths will be in vain. Four Death Eaters pursue them. Harry has to sink low to avoid inbound curses, shifting around to try to shoot spells back at their foes. He shouts, stupefy. Hagrid tells Harry to hold on and pushes a green button, which unleashes a solid brick wall that one of the four pursuers crashes into. He dropped like a boulder from behind it, his broomstick broken into pieces. In the brief instant where you, the reader, wonder if this man is dead, if this battle has forced Hagrid and Harry to kill in order to survive, another Death Eater saves his falling peer. But you can't shake that thought. The cost of war isn't just what others do to you. It's what war makes you do to other people. Hagrid mashes another button, which shoots a net from the exhaust, but the Death Eaters are ready and they avoid it. As the three pursue the bike, Hagrid tries another trick, pressing the purple button. From the book, with an unmistakable bellowing roar, dragonfire bursts from the exhaust. The bike shoots forward like a bullet as the Death Eaters swerve to avoid the flame. But Harry feels the sidecar swaying, its connection to the main bike splintering from the force of the dragon burst. Hagrid tries to repair the connection with his pink umbrella, but before Harry can stop him, the sidecar breaks away. Harry's fast thinking saves him. He casts Wingardium Leviosa on the sidecar to keep it elevated, allowing Hagrid to come and catch him. Harry's firing curses at the charging Death Eaters. Hagrid reaches him and seizes his robes, pulling him onto the bike. Harry grabs the bag containing the essentials for his life on the road, but he doesn't have time to reach for Hedwig's cage, too. Harry points his wand at the falling sidecar and casts Confringo. From the book, he knew a dreadful, gut-wrenching pang for Hedwig as it exploded. These are the hideous choices that wore foists upon Harry, the unbearable cost he must pay. The explosion takes two Death Eaters out of commission, but it's the end of Harry's hope that Hedwig wasn't really dead, a hope he knew was futile anyway, just as after Dumbledore died, but a hope he carried nonetheless. Now that's over. So sad. Poor Hedwig. With Harry so precariously positioned on the bike, Hagrid can't use any of the contraptions anymore. It's on Hagrid to navigate and Harry to fight. That's all that's left to them. And as one of the Death Eaters moves to avoid Harry's curse, his hood slips and Harry sees that it's Stan Shunpike, who, remember, Harry does not believe is a Death Eater, could not believe the Ministry would keep him prison, who he broached multiple times with Scrimgeour in order to prove his moral fiber and show how very far apart Harry and the Ministry were and what they fundamentally valued. Expelliarmus, Harry yells at Stan whom he knows is not choosing this, knows must be cursed, and thus does not want to hurt. That's him, one of the Death Eaters shouts. It's him. It's the real one. We will learn soon that they knew this was Harry because of the spell choice, that in turning to his one true love, Expelliarmus, a defensive spell meant to protect rather than to wound in a time of outright battle, overt, bloody war. Harry acted in a way so true to himself that it could be true to no other. It is his signature, Lupin will later observe. And while that is used against him here, used to reveal his identity here, it is ultimately a testament to his character. Harry does not want to harm. He wants to save. And this spell, as Harry reminded that fucking piece of garbage prat Zachariah Smith in the DA, and as he'll remind everyone who watches his final duel with Voldemort at the end, saved him from Voldemort before, and it will again. 
how can Harry reconcile the reality that the cost of being true to himself and acting righteously also puts him in peril? The Death Eaters vanish. Quote, Harry was afraid. He tells Hagrid to use the dragon burst. Hagrid says he thinks they've lost them. They're almost at their destination. They're so close. Quote, then the scar on his forehead burned like a fire. Death Eaters appear on both sides in killing curses, missing him by millimeters from the book. And then Harry saw him. Voldemort was flying like smoke on the wind without broomstick or thestral to hold him. Hagrid screams and sends the bike into a vertical dive. One of Harry's curses reaches a target. He feels the bike spin completely out of control. From the book, he expected to die at any second. A Death Eater mere feet away raises their arm toward Harry. Hagrid shouts, no, and with a shout of fury, launches himself off the bike of the attacker. From the book, to his horror, Harry saw both Hagrid and the Death Eater falling out of sight. Their combined weight too much for the broomstick. The prospect of losing Hagrid, who's been, as we discussed at length in Prince, friend and family alike to Harry, is inconceivable. Hagrid is one with the air around Harry, a part of the fabric of his universe. But Hagrid did not hesitate to act, did not pause to think. Saving Harry mattered more to him than protecting himself. It's the kind of sacrifice Harry himself has made and will make again, one born of friendship and love. As Harry's gripping the bike with his knees, he hears Voldemort scream, mine, like a greedy child grasping for a toy or a candy bar, an unrelenting desire to win, to dominate, ruling him. From the book, it was over. Harry can't see or hear. He knows this is the end. As the word Avada reaches his ears from the book, his wand acted of its own accord. He feels it drag his hand like a magnet, sees golden fire emerge, and hears a crack and a scream for Voldemort. No! We'll talk about this more at length. Harry uses his remaining strength in the instant of reprieve to push the dragon fire button, which hurls the bike straight towards the ground. Harry's screaming Hagrid's name, shouting Akio Hagrid in an effort to summon the half-giant. He hears Voldemort demanding another Death Eater, Selwyn's wand. He feels, then sees Voldemort return to the side of him. From the book, he stared into the red eyes and was sure they would be the last thing he ever saw, and then Voldemort vanishes. Harry sees Hagrid spread eagle on the ground below him. Then, from the book, with an ear-splitting and ground-trembling crash, he smashed into a muddy pond. Chapter 5, Fallen Warrior. Voldemort, particularly before his self-serving moment of introspection in Dark Lord Ascending, likes to frame Harry's victories as creatures of chance, enabled and amplified by his, asterisk, or his followers' mistakes. That formulation is wrong. Mm-hmm. It elides Harry's innate courage, his righteous anger in the face of injustice, and his very real and very potent magical gifts. Those qualities are why he has been in the position to be lucky in those engagements with Voldemort and his followers. They're why he's not just alive, but undefeated in his heart and his mind by the menace that he's faced since childhood. One thing that Voldemort and the Chosen One do agree on, however, is that luck has played a role. Mm-hmm. Tonight, perhaps a starring one. As Harry struggles out of the wreckage of Sirius's motorcycle, he focuses on Hagrid lying motionless in the shallow water and Voldemort. From the book, he could not understand where Voldemort had gone and expected him to swoop out of the darkness at any moment. He crawls toward Hagrid, repeating his name. Talk to me, he says. He hears other voices and then passes out. And when he wakes, he realizes he crash-landed on the property of Ted and Andromeda Tonks, Tonks' parents, who carry Harry inside. The first thing Harry does when he wakes is repeat Hagrid's name again. He must know if Hagrid is okay. Hagrid's fine son, Ted says shortly before introducing himself as Tonks' father. The wife's seeing to him now, he says. 
What a relief. The Death Eater attack was so sudden, the escape so ragged and improvised that the details are almost scarier in retrospect as it becomes clear just how close Harry came to dying and how severe his injuries actually were. Ted says, how are you feeling? Anything else broken? I fixed your ribs, your tooth, your arm. And Harry tells him, Death Eaters, loads of them. We were chased. Death Eaters, said Ted sharply. What do you mean, Death Eaters? I thought they didn't know you were being moved tonight. I thought they knew, said Harry. Ted Tonks looked up at the ceiling as though he could see through it to the sky above. The Order's protections were apparently well made. They held. And Harry realizes this is why Voldemort suddenly vanished when Harry's death seemed so close at hand. They'd reached the barrier of their enchantments and Harry had crossed through. But how long will the ward's charms continue to hold? This is the reality of Voldemort's ward. There's no safe place for him for long. No hiding from his evil. Hagrid limps in with Andromeda Tonks, who Harry briefly thinks is Bellatrix Lestrange. He shouts, you! and goes for his wand, but it isn't in his pocket. Andromeda looks less like her sister Bella as she enters the light of the room, and she asks where her daughter is. And Harry does not know what happened to Tonks or to anyone else, and it tears at him. The only thing worse for Harry than not being able to save someone is the idea that someone came to harm because of or for him. That's what gnawed away at him after Sirius went to the ministry to rescue him and there met his death. Quote, it was his fault Sirius had died. It was all his fault. That's the wail that echoed in his soul as he flew back to Hogwarts with Dumbledore and Half-Blood Prince, the dark mark looming ahead. Quote, would he be responsible again for the death of a friend? That's why he didn't want to do this plan tonight. Didn't want people he cared about to pretend to be him in the first place. Harry doesn't yet know that Moody has fallen. But he knows that Hedwig has. He knows that Hagrid's hurt. He knows that he's staring into Ted and Andromeda's faces, unable to tell them if their child, newly married, fierce and strong, is okay. Quote, a mixture of fear and guilt gripped Harry at the sight of their expressions. If any of the others had died, it was his fault, all his fault. He had consented to the plan, given them his hair. Cedric, Sirius, Dumbledore, his parents. Harry can't bear the thought of more people dying for him, especially now that he knows he has to hunt for Horcruxes, that he has to be the one to kill Voldemort, that he really does have to serve not only as general, but as lead soldier in this war. There's no time to process everything that's happened, though. No time for Harry to find the words for a proper apology. The porky to the burrow is in the next room, and it's set to leave in three minutes. Comfort and courtesy, too. Cost of this tragic war. Quote, he looked at Mrs. Tonks, wanting to apologize for the state of fear in which he left her, and for which he felt so terribly responsible. But no words occurred to him that did not seem hollow and insincere. Remember what Harry thought about saying farewell to the Dursleys? What did you say to one another at the end of 16 years' solid dislike? Well, what do you say to each other after meeting each other five seconds ago when you're both thinking you might be responsible for the death of a loved one or a friend? That's not easy either. As Ted leads Harry and Hagrid to the hairbrush that will shepherd them away, Hagrid says, wait a moment, Harry, where's Hedwig? She, she got hit, said Harry. The realization crashed over him. He felt ashamed of himself as the tears stung his eyes. The owl had been his companion, his one great link with the magical world whenever he had been forced to return to the Dursleys. Harry shouldn't feel any shame here. He deserves to be vulnerable, to get lost in his grief. But just as Hagrid, who understands as well as anyone the revelatory bond that humans and animals can share, reaches out to comfort Harry, the hairbrush glows. There's no time for pain or reflection. 
there's a familiar pull behind the navel and spinning sensation, and Harry and Hagrid are hurled to the ground outside the burrow. He hears screams. Harry! You are the real Harry? What happened? Where are the others? Cried Mrs. Weasley. What do you mean? Isn't anyone else back? Harry panted. The answer was clearly etched in Mrs. Weasley's pale face. Only Harry and Hagrid have returned. The possibility that some members of the order might have been killed is suddenly replaced with a new and more terrible potentiality that only Harry and Hagrid made it out alive. Harry attempts to explain what occurred. The ambush, the desperate flight, Voldemort there in the awful flesh. But from the book, he could hear the self-justifying note in his voice, the plea for her to understand why he did not know what happened to her sons. This is a small moment of point of view writing from Rowling, but it's indicative of the immense maturation that's occurred on Harry's part. Mm -hmm. We've seen Harry angsty and anxious, uncomfortable in his own skin, which often manifested as a quick temper, bullheadedness, defensiveness, such as when Hermione trenchantly pointed out his penchant for casting himself as the rescuer, the savior. Harry is much more self-aware now, able to analyze his own actions and be honest with himself about where they come from. One of the clearest costs of this war has been Harry's childhood, which ended almost as soon as it was just beginning. He's had to grow up at a frantic pace, set aside from his peers by fame for an event he doesn't remember. And he's often resented that and tried, perhaps not consciously, to live out the life of a normal teenager while the world around him slowly burned. Now in those ashes stirs the beginnings of wisdom, if not wisdom itself. Amid that transformation, the Weasleys have been a constant in his life. The idea that they might suffer more because of him, that Mrs. Weasley's long-ago Boggart vision might come to be because of him, makes him not want to be him. But once again, Molly shows her mettle. Thank goodness you're all right. Harry is part of her family, too, as precious as her own flesh and blood. He doesn't feel that he deserves the hug she gives him, but it's her way of reminding him that they're all in this together. Hagrid asks for some brandy. Quote for medicinal purposes. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Ginny fills Harry in. Ron and Tonks were supposed to arrive at the borough first, but their porky came back without them. Arthur and Fred's did, too. Harry and Hagrid arrived as scheduled. Other than each other and Harry... Molly and Ginny's entire family is, at this point, unaccounted for. And then they see the trademark spinning blue light of an arriving porky and the figures of its two passengers. But it's immediately clear that something is wrong. Quote, Lupin was supporting George, who was unconscious and whose face was covered in blood. Harry, who only minutes ago was himself being carried unconscious, rushes to help Lupin bring George inside. The warm and familiar light of the burrow reveals a gruesome sight. One of George's ears is missing. Quote, the side of his head and neck were drenched in wet, shockingly scarlet blood. Harry's stomach lurches at the sight, but before he can really take it in, Lupin grabs him roughly, drags him into the kitchen over Hagrid's objections. What creature sat in the corner the first time that Harry Potter visited my office at Hogwarts? He shouts and he's shaking Harry. Answer me. And Harry does, correctly, a grindelow. And Lupin collapses against the kitchen cupboard in relief. We've been betrayed, he says. Only the people directly involved with the Seven Potters plan knew about it, which, Lupin reasons, means that someone spilled. In reality, we'll learn that Snape planted the plan with dung in the first place. But that clarity is far away. All that exists here is terror and newly seated doubt. Who turned? Who broke through the ranks? You might have been an imposter, Lupin says to Harry in explanation. Add trust. One of the most precious things in the world and one of the few advantages that the Order has over the mm-hmm. Death Eaters to the growing tally of war. Harry, whose closest friends would never betray him, and even after what he thinks is Snape's vile defection, can't fathom that a member of the Order would turn. To Harry, Snape is an 
isolated case, a Death Eater he never trusted anyway, who hated his father and hates him, who used his ability as an occlumen to take advantage of Dumbledore's trust. The other members of the Order never gave Harry reason to doubt him. Harry brings up a solid point. Quote, Voldemort only caught up with me toward the end. He didn't know which one I was in the beginning. If he'd been in on the plan, he'd have known from the start I was the one with Hagrid. Lupin is stunned to hear that Voldemort appeared, and Harry fills him in on the chase and how the Death Eaters seem to recognize him, summoning the Dark Lord, and the ensuing crash landing at Casa Tonks. Lupin is alarmed. He says, they recognize you, but how? What had you done? And Harry tells him about seeing Stan Shunpike among the Death Eaters and seeking to disarm him rather than stun him or hit him with any other spell. As we outlined above, Harry is fervent in his belief that Stan is under the Imperius. And this is what we love about Harry, even with everything that's happened, faced with a literal war and an existential war at that, he holds stubbornly to his ideals. Perhaps, too, this is a young person's privilege. Lupin has lived a hard and long and lonely life, and what's left of his life is precious to him in a way that youth surely cannot understand. His closest boyhood friends who became Animagi so he wouldn't have to carry the burden of being a werewolf alone are all dead, except for Pettigrew, who betrayed James and Lily to Voldemort and who even now sits at the Dark Lord's side. For Lupin, the time for half-measures is long gone. From the book, Lupin looked aghast. Harry, the time for disarming is past. These people are trying to capture and kill you, at least stun if you aren't prepared to kill. And look, certainly Lupin has a point. But as Harry notes, stunning Stan that high in the air would have amounted to killing him. And Harry doesn't want to be a killer. Even the prospect of killing Voldemort fills him with nothing but sorrow. And he'll do everything in his power at the end of this book to let Tom Riddle try to save himself, to let him try for some remorse. Think again of some of the magic or magical items that we most associate with Harry. An invisibility cloak. Used to infiltrate, sure, but also to shield so that one may pass safely without engaging in violence. The Marauder's Map. Also used to gain access, it's true, but used to do so ideally absent detection. The Patronus Charm. A force that drives another away. But primarily a defender. A force of positivity and hope that guards and sustains. It's so jarring to hear Lupin speak of killing and violence in this way, in part because he's the man who taught Harry how to cast a Patronus. We associate Lupin with light and hope, with finding and channeling strength. But remember what Lupin said to Harry about Dementors and fearing fear itself. Remember that he's recently been living underground with the werewolves, afraid to even be with the woman he loves because of what he is and how society has cast him aside. He knows all too well how ugly and cruel the world can be. The other magic that we associate with Harry, of course, is Expelliarmus, which Harry points out here saved him from Voldemort two years ago in the graveyard. Yes, Harry, said Lupin, with painful restraint. And a great number of Death Eaters witnessed that happening. Forgive me, but it was a very unusual move then, under imminent threat of death. Repeating it tonight in front of Death Eaters who either witnessed or heard about the first occasion was close to suicidal. Well, Harry is an unusual boy. He says, so you think I should have killed Stan Shunpike? Harry is fortunate to have people around him, like Hermione before the Department of Mysteries debacle, like Dumbledore when he challenged Harry's got-to view of the prophecy, and like Lupin now, who won't shield him from hard truths, no matter how much it hurts Harry to hear them, and whether or not Harry has any interest in choosing to heed them. Mm -hmm. It's a huge advantage that Harry has over Voldemort, whose camp is full of those who are too afraid to even meet his gaze, let alone challenge his mind. 
Of course not, Lupin tells Harry, but the Death Eaters, frankly, most people would have expected you to attack back. Expelliarmus is a useful spell, Harry, but the Death Eaters <laughs> seem to think it is, and this hurts. This hurts. Your signature move. I urge you not to let it become so. Too late, my guy! <laughs> Very, a little late on that one. <laughs> now, just because Harry is fortunate enough to have people around him who are willing to challenge him, doesn't mean that those people are always right. And while Lupin's words of caution are worth assessing and parsing, and while the don't be predictable aspect in particular is worth taking seriously, the rest is just too contrary to Harry's character for him to even pretend to absorb. Quote, I won't blast people out of my way just because they're there, said Harry. That's Voldemort's job. Whew. The mere fact that this debate is taking place is a measure of the vast chasm between yes. Harry and Voldemort. Harry's resolve on his side of the argument is the reason that he alone is best equipped to fight this war. He doesn't want a wound. He doesn't want power. Lupin has more to say, but they're interrupted by two figures appearing in the yard, Hermione and Kingsley. Hermione flings herself at Harry, and while this embrace is heartrending with imposters and betrayal and mind control being deployed in various measures by both sides, it's also clearly unwise. Over Hermione's shoulder, Harry sees Kingsley raise his wand and point it at Lupin's chest. Kingsley, like Lupin, knows what the Death Eater's presence means. From the book, the last words Albus Dumbledore spoke to the pair of us. Harry is the best hope we have. Trust him, said Lupin calmly. <sighs> Chills every yeah. time. Amid the frenetic events of the evening, this exchange is an anchor reminding readers Harry and everyone else in the room of the unifying force at play. Harry, Dumbledore, the trust that they shared, the belief in their mission— Kingsley then wheels wand first on Harry, but Lupin tells him that he's checked their chosen one, is the real deal. Each new arrival brings another sliver of information. Kingsley, with the matter-of-fact starkness of someone who's seen his share of fighting, tells them how he and Hermione escaped. He says, followed by five, injured two, might have killed one. Just flat the facts. out. Just flat out. He mentions seeing Voldemort as well. Voldemort's ability to fly is a development that clearly terrifies all of them. One more unnatural wrench in his wicked tool belt. Harry jumps in, telling the Aura that Dark Lord broke off from the engagement to chase him and Hagrid. This leads Lupin to recount how Harry was, quote, a little too kind to stand Shunpike. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought he was in Azkaban, Hermione says. This is how chaotic the night was. Yep. Only now is someone getting around to asking how Stan got back out on the streets. Uh -huh. Kingsley says, Hermione, there's obviously been a mass breakout, which the ministry has hushed up. Travers's hood fell off when I cursed him. He's supposed to be on the inside, too. Scrimger's administration began with the hope that, as a hard-bitten aura, the new minister would confront the Voldemort threat and comport itself with more clarity in order to keep the populace safe and informed. Unfortunately, the new ministry is too much like the old one. Where's George? They ask. Lupin tells Kingsley about George's injury and tells him who wounded him. Snape. That gets Harry's attention. Uh -huh. He didn't see Snape in the air. There's a saying in warfare credit to Helmuth von Moltke, the chief of staff of the Prussian army. You probably know it from the paraphrased and much less unwieldy version, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. This aphorism neatly sums up what happened in general and in detail to the Seven Potters plan. Battle is inherently chaotic, and human beings act irrationally under the best of circumstances. Snape, we will learn in The Prince's Tale, when his seed-planting control of Mundungus and all his other spycraft becomes clear, was aiming Septum Semper at a Death Eater, who was about to kill Lupin. And this is just so sad to think about. Yeah. A man he hated. Yep. 
that he was acting to save. Yep. But in the aerial confusion, he missed and hit George. Snape acted at great risk to himself by attempting to attack a Death Eater in the open, not to mention the risk of being taken out by the Order who consider him a murderous traitor. Snape's inadvertent curse again underlines just how lucky Harry was on this night. The revelation that Snape was among the attackers that night chills the room. Harry moves over to George, where Molly is cleaning his wound. She says that it can't be repaired, not when it's been cursed off by dark magic. And when we think about fantasy worlds, when we dive into them for hours and pages at a time, one of the pulls that they have over us is endless possibility and promise. Your room destroyed? Cast Reparo. Your bones broken? Sip some Skelligro. Entrance to a secret chamber hidden from view? Hiss open into the air. But the best stories, the ones that speak to the truths in our lives and stay with us in the long, cold nights, balance that hope with regret. If everything could be fixed, we'd have nothing to fear, nothing to lose. We'd have nothing to challenge our humanity. Even in the magical world, the howl of misery that Harry feels as Mrs. Weasley wraps her arms around him following Cedric's death still fights to get out. No spell can reawaken the dead. No spell can take away all of our pain. Sometimes, no spell can remove a mark, a scar on a young boy's forehead, a hole in the side of a young man's head that darkness itself wrought. It makes us remember always that there can be a cost. Then there's a shout. Arthur and Fred's rivals announced by a crash from the kitchen and Arthur's voice bellowing, I'll prove who I am, Kingsley, after I've seen my son. Now back off if you know what's good for you. Arthur is generally a genial, easygoing fellow. But this night was too close a call. Put too much in jeopardy. We often discuss Harry's burdens, his feelings of guilt at the dangers others face in his name. Well, what about Arthur here? What he must be feeling at this moment is unimaginable. Harry is family, yes. But Arthur surely considers Ron, Bill, Fred, and George's safety as his personal responsibility, as important as the mission to move Harry himself. That's not to criticize Arthur in any way for not right. being satisfactorily dedicated to the cause. The Weasleys were at Order headquarters from the beginning. Arthur nearly died protecting the prophecy in the Department of Mysteries. And when his sons challenged Sirius in the wake of that attack, Sirius reminded them that Arthur had chosen to fight chosen in an unspoken way to put his life on the line for the cause. It's just a statement of fact. Ron, Bill, Fred, and George are Arthur's flesh and blood. Wanting to help Harry fight and needing to keep his family safe both feel impossible at times, but they are not mutually exclusive goals. He can try to prioritize both. A night like this, however, reminds them all that it might not be possible to prioritize both equally forever. Fred will fall at the Battle of Hogwarts. Fred, meanwhile, doesn't just share a home and a burgeoning business with George. They shared a womb. Quote, for the first time since Harry had known him, Fred seemed to be lost for words. Luckily for now, George's effervescent spirit and wiseacre tongue can't be tamed by a mere near-death maiming. Seeing him stir, perhaps in response to sensing Fred's presence, Molly asks how he's feeling. And George says, saint-like. And Fred is deeply afraid here, worried that George's mind is addled. And then George continues, you see, I'm holy. Holy, Fred. Get it? Relief. But Ron and Bill are still missing. Time unfurls interminably, and the minutes spin off into the darkness, into eternity. Harry and Ginny walk into the yard. From the book, he had been trying to keep fear at bay ever since reaching the burrow, but now it enveloped him, seeming to crawl over his skin, throbbing in his chest, clogging his throat. 
Kingsley's pacing the yard, Hagrid, Hermione, and Lupin are standing shoulder to shoulder. These are the people Hagrid loves. Hermione is waiting for Ron, the man she wants to be with. Lupin is waiting for his new wife. Harry's agony so often feels specific and unique and particular to him, but here, tonight, everyone shares it. Then a broom screams out of the sky, and it's Tonks and Ron. Ron, dazed, greets the sight of his friends, Harry and Hermione, with dulled surprise as Hermione, quote, flew at him and hugged him tightly. She mutters, I thought, I thought, left unspoken is the specific fear we know grips them all. Tonks, meanwhile, cries out at the sight of Remus, throwing her arms around him. From the book, his face was set and white. He seemed unable to speak. Tonks tells them, unbidden, that Ron was, quote, great. <laughs> he apparently headshotted one of the Death Eaters, a moving target, guys, mm-hmm. with a stunner, a difficult shot for anyone. You did, said Hermione, gazing up at Ron with her arms still around his neck. Always the tone of surprise, he said, a little (laughs) grumpily breaking free. Are we the last back? J.K.'s masterful, always masterful, dropping these moments of levity and tenderness into scenes of dark drama and emotional suspense. And the result is moments like this, which reveal hidden depths upon second or third or fourth or infinite reading. This exchange is, on the surface— a play on the low expectations Ron's family and friends have for him and how desperately he's craved there, and specifically in this moment, Hermione's praise and affection. It's a glimpse into how Hermione and Ron are finding comfort in their feelings for each other. But on another level, though, we have to wonder, considering the height that the fight took place at, did Ron just kill someone? (laughs) Is Ron... Seriously. I don't know why this makes me laugh, but... (laughs) The group recounts their tales of battle and escape. Tonks noting that Bellatrix tried very hard to kill her acting. We know, thanks to what we've read in Chapter 1, on Voldemort's directive to prune the rotting branches of her family tree. Yes. As she explains, Lupin, who, quote, sounded almost angry when he asked Tonks what kept her so long, nods but can't speak. He's confronting what losing his love, his family, would mean. A love and a family that he didn't think he deserved to have. She asks for everyone else's stories. Quote, but all the time, the continued absence of Bill, Flora, Mad-Eye, and Mundungus seemed to lie upon them like a frost. It's icy bite, harder and harder to ignore. The writing in this book is so good. Kingsley, late for guarding the frickin' muggle prime minister, <laughs> I know, has so to good. go check in at work. <laughs> what a flex, by the way. <laughs> Guys, I'm late. <laughs> The BBC might have cameras rolling. I've got to get back to Downing Street. He disapparates, and right after he leaves, Molly and Arthur run out to embrace Ron, their youngest boy. This next line is gut-wrenching. Thank you, Molly says to everyone, for our sons. Oh, my God. Just as Ron is hearing about George, a Thestral carrying Bill and Flora flies out of the night sky. But before Arthur and Molly and the rest can celebrate their safe return, Bill shares chilling, devastating news. Mad-Eye Moody is dead. Quote, nobody spoke, nobody moved. Harry felt as though something inside him was falling, falling through the earth, leaving him forever. Alistair Moody is a titan, a legend. More myth than man. He survived a year in his own trunk. That was tough. Extremely. He had Dumbledore's trust in Harry's, too. He put Death Eaters in Azkaban and never walked away from a fight. Never let the mockery and the chatter and the whispers best him. He was a consummate warrior. How could he be dead? And how could any of them hope to survive if a Goliath like Moody had fallen? Bill and Floor saw it happen. 
Mad-Eye apparently trying to keep a fear-struck Dung Fletch from being the coward that he is after the flying Voldemort appeared, took Voldemort's killing curse full in the face after Dung disapparated. Moody plummeted who knows how far to the earth. It dawns on them all that with Moody dead and Dung gone, there's no more reason to wait. They go inside, lost in their thoughts and their grief. In just a few months, the Order has lost Dumbledore, only the most powerful and wise wizard anyone has ever known, and Mad-Eye, the most battle-hardened Auror of the day. Not long before that, they lost Sirius, a brilliant and gifted wizard, an animagus and a trusted friend. Losses are mounting. The twins are shocked to hear the news. Tonks, Mad-Eye's favorite and his protege, is heartbroken and weeping. Haggard is a wreck. Bill gets a bottle of fire whiskey and sends 12 glasses around the room, holding a 13th to honor Alistair. Mad-Eye, Mad-Eye, they all said and drank. After the toast to Mad-Eye's memory, Lupin brings up Dung, and everyone immediately understands his meaning. I know what you're thinking, said Bill, and I wondered that too on the way back here because they seemed to be expecting us, didn't they? But Mondungus can have betrayed us. They didn't know there would be seven Harrys. That confused them the moment we appeared, and in case you've forgotten, it was Mundungus who suggested that little bit of skullduggery. Dung, Bill deduced. Panicked, simple as that. A coward who never wanted to fight. We'll discover later that the mole is Snape. No one in the order revealed the information, but Dung still betrayed them. That clarity, however, is a long way off. And in the meantime, Fleur brings up another possibility. What if the culprit was simply careless? What if he was simply careless? (laughs) (laughs) And let's slip about the plan. That's the only explanation, she says, for the Death Eaters knowing the date, but not the full plan. Harry's mind, he doesn't want it to happen. He doesn't want to think this, but he does think it. He does think it. As Hagrid hiccups, Harry's mind hesitantly turns toward Hagrid. Quote, whom he loved, whom he trusted, who had once been tricked into giving Voldemort crucial information in exchange for a dragon's egg. It's a tough look for Hagrid in that moment. (sighs) But no, Harry decides. No, he speaks aloud to the room. So much has happened. Lives have already been lost, and there are surely more deadly and dangerous trials to come. Trust between these friends and lovers and family members has been tested, but they cannot allow the phrase to become tears. This trust, this love, cannot become another casualty. Not if they hope to win. Not if they hope to preserve the reason that they're fighting. Quote, if somebody made a mistake, Harry says, the fire whiskey giving him courage, and let something slip, I know they didn't mean to do it. It's not their fault. He repeated, again, a little louder than he would usually have spoken. Harry's shit-faced here. (laughs) Yeah. We've got to trust each other. I trust all of you. I don't think anyone in this room would ever sell me to Voldemort. This is what Lupin and Kingsley meant when they tested each other to find out if they were really them. This is what Dumbledore meant when he said those words to them in the first place. This is why Harry is their best hope. Part of Harry's growth is that he's more introspective and reflective than ever. And so as his plea washes over the room, he thinks about how Mad-Eye always bemoaned Dumbledore's willingness to trust people. Harry himself— was always maddened, maddened by Dumbledore's refusal to question Snape. Is Harry making the same mistake here? Well, we will learn, of course, that Dumbledore's trust in Snape wasn't a mistake, but even if it had been, what purpose would Harry be serving by letting the lesson from that be fear? The most important thing that Dumbledore taught him was to believe in himself, his choices, the power of his love, and that is what he's doing here. Harry's words tellingly strike a chord with the younger members of the Order the one-time members of the DA. Well said, Harry, said Fred unexpectedly. Yeah, ear, ear. (laughs) (laughs) Said George. Already played it up. (laughs) 
It is again Lupin who's seen how tragically trust, blind trust, can make people pay, who opposes Harry. Lupin, quote, was wearing an odd expression as he looked at Harry. It was close to pitying. You think I'm a fool, demanded Harry. No, I think you're like James, said Lupin, who would have regarded it as the height of dishonor to mistrust his friends. Now, this is simultaneously an ode to Harry's heart. Because remember, Lupin loved James dearly. And also a reminder for Harry and us of what unwavering trust can bring. James died because a friend he trusted, Peter Pettigrew, betrayed him. Lupin turns away. He knows there's no use in arguing whether or not he believes Harry's stance unwise. The Chosen One is the Order's center of gravity now. That's clear. They have to trust his vision, just as Dumbledore said to. He says, there's work to do. I can ask Kingsley whether, no, said Bill at once. I'll do it. I'll come. They're going to retrieve Mad-Eye Moody's body, refusing to leave a fallen comrade behind to be picked up by Death Eaters. Molly, Tonks, and Fleur are aghast, but they don't protest for long. Lupin and Bill's exit gives Harry the opening to try for one of his own. From the book, the suddenness and completeness of death was with them like a presence. I've got to go too, he says. The response to this is basically 10 people going, no, the fuck you aren't. (laughs) As Ginny would say, it's for some stupid noble reason, isn't it? Yes, it is. (laughs) Harry's scar is burning more than it has in a year, and he knows all too well that he is Voldemort's target. Anyone who is close to him runs the risk of becoming collateral damage. He says, you're all in danger while I'm here. Mrs. Weasley, meanwhile, is like, uh, Fleur and Bill are getting married, and she changed her plane tickets. She's not doing it in France. The caterer is booked. You RSVP'd. What are you talking about? We can't, no. You said fish, and we got the fish, we got just the right amount of fish. Like, you can't, no, you're not going. Just for the record, Harry's not the RSVPing type. He's not, but still. (laughs) Plus, as she reminds him, quote, the whole point of tonight was to get you here safely. Mm-hmm. Recall Lupin's words to Harry and Askman when speaking about Harry's parents, about, quote, gambling their sacrifice. Yes. Others are sacrificing for Harry, too. Matt, I just sacrificed his life. That means they have a say. They can at least air their objections. If Harry goes out now on his own, what was any of that for? But what happens, Harry wonders, if and when Voldemort finds out he's at the borough. Molly, again— is not having any of this. Neither is Hagrid or George or Hermione. From the book again, he felt beleaguered and blackmailed. Did they think he did not know what they had done for him? Didn't they understand that it was for precisely that reason that he wanted to go now before they had to suffer any more on his behalf? And this is Harry at his essence. Headstrong, idealistic, worried more about others than himself, innately heroic, and sometimes reckless, but always selflessly so. In the awkward silence, Hermione asks after Hedwig, and Harry finds himself too distraught to answer. Quote, his insides clenched like a fist. He could not tell the truth. He downs another gulp of whiskey instead, and he's fucking— Our our guy is hammered at this point. He was just, we gotta trust each other, you guys! And Hagrid breaks the tension by pointing out, quite rightly, that though it in no way feels like it, Harry just beat Voldemort again. <laughs> I know, like, let's, can we look, can we look at the, hold on, can we look at the scoreboard for a second? 
This is getting to be like how I hate to bring this up because of my it's my O's. How right. the Fenway scoreboard people had to like make new placards because yes. the Orioles were so bad this year. Yeah. Woo! Quote: Escaped him, fought him off when he was right on top of you. Haggard says, but Harry takes no solace, draws no comfort or confidence from this victory, which cost the life of his loyal owl and one of the most fearsome horrors ever. As with his victory at age one over the Dark Lord, Harry has no idea how he did this. He just knows that it came at too great a cost. Quote, it wasn't me, he says. It was my wand. My wand acted of its own accord. Hermione tells him that's impossible. She and Arthur both posit, in essence, that he must have acted instinctively, noting that pressurized situations can lead wizards to produce new magic. It happens with small children, Arthur says. And we know that it happened to Harry when he was a boy and needed to regrow his hair or shrink an ugly sweater or escape Dudley's gang. It wasn't like that, said Harry through gritted teeth. His scar was burning. He felt angry and frustrated. He hated the idea that they were all imagining him to have power to match Voldemort's. And indeed, it wasn't like that. Wandlore will take center stage in the rest of this book. And the mystery of what Harry's wand did tonight will perplex him and Voldemort and Ollivander in equal measure. Clarity will come to us and Harry in time in the form that it so often does over the course of this series. Dumbledore's best guess. When Harry asks Dumbledore about this in King's Cross, Dumbledore will tell him that he and Voldemort have, quote, journeyed together into realms of magic hitherto unknown and untested. No wand maker would have known of this unprecedented occurrence. We will explore this answer and its significance at much greater length in later episodes. But the substance of it is this. When Harry's wand and Voldemort's wand experience prior incantatum in the graveyard and goblet of fire, Dumbledore says, Harry's wand, quote, imbibed some of the powers and qualities of Voldemort's wand that night, which is to say that it contained a little of Voldemort himself. And so Harry's wand recognized Voldemort when he attacked. Quote, your wand now contained the power of your enormous courage and of Voldemort's own deadly skill. Epic dunk coming here. <laughs> What chance did that poor stick of Lucius Malfoy's stand? Wow. That poor stick. Woof. Harry's wand, as we will see in Godric's Hollow when it snaps, is not unbeatable. But the connection that he and Voldemort and their wand share is unparalleled. And wands, like so much else in the wizarding world, are alive. They think and feel. They learn. They adapt. They bond. Harry will come to appreciate and understand the majesty and mystery of wand lore more than most and certainly more than Voldemort. It's part of what will allow him to prevail in the end, as he, unlike Tom Riddle, is able to recognize who really won the Elder Wand's allegiance. But here, he knows only that a scar hurts, and that it feels so helpless to be unable to convince those around him of what he knows to be true. Quote, Dumbledore would have believed him. He knew it. He reflects on how much Dumbledore had already told him about his wand— and about how much more he surely knew. Quote, but Dumbledore, like Mad-Eye, like Sirius, like his parents, like his poor Al, all were gone where Harry could never talk to them again. Stay tuned, my guy. He felt a burning in his throat that had nothing to do with fire whiskey. And then his scar tears open, and he is transported, as he hasn't been in more than a year, back into Voldemort's mind. You told me the problem would be solved using another's wand, he hears Voldemort shout, and he sees Ollivander, emaciated captive, screaming in agony as Voldemort tortures him and accuses him of trying to help Harry. This, we realize, is the prisoner that Voldemort mentioned in Chapter 1. I believed a different wand would work, Ollivander says. He cannot understand why Harry's wand would have broken Lucius's. The connection exists only between Voldemort's wand and Harry's. 
When Harry snaps to from this vision, shaking, he realizes that Ron and Hermione are there, and he tells them what he just saw. And Hermione is rightly horrified. None of them know that what Harry just witnessed is the beginning of what will set Voldemort on the course to finding the Elder Wand. But they know that Harry is not supposed to be seeing into Voldemort's mind at all, that Dumbledore sought to stop that, and that Sirius died because it didn't stop. Harry, Hermione begs. He's taking over the ministry and the newspapers and half the wizarding world. Don't let him inside your head, too. Chapter 6, The Ghoul in Pajamas. Mad-Eye's death hangs over the burrow like a cloud. Harry wants to move, to act, to stop his guilt from eating away at him. But he's still not 17. The trace, still active. Plus, it's cuffing season, you guys. (sighs) Even though staying for the wedding means staying one day beyond his birthday, Harry is irate. He says, don't they realize how important? He begins to say, at which point Ron points out, well, no. No one knows about the Horcruxes, dude. That was part of the deal. No one knows what Harry, Ron, and Hermione are planning. Ron tells Harry that Molly, Arthur, and Lupin have all tried to get dirt off Ron and Hermione. Arthur and Lupin dropped it when they said they were acting on Dumbledore's orders, but not Molly. She's determined, Ron says, and tells Harry to brace for a similar assault. And who can blame her, honestly? Mm -hmm. Molly's lost her brothers during the First War. She lost Percy to family strife. She's seen Bill mauled by a werewolf and George robbed of an ear. Ginny was taken into the Chamber of Secrets. Arthur was attacked by Nagini. Molly has a list of very real reasons to worry, real reasons to press. It's almost too long to believe. She corners Harry by asking him to identify a sock. One more link for Harry and socks. And then she pounces. Ron and Hermione seem to think that the three of you are dropping out of Hogwarts. When she presses him on the mission from Dumbledore that he raises in reply, he refuses to share details. Here again, we must ask why Harry chose to heed this particular lesson of Dumbledore's, why he chose to adopt this precise penchant for secrecy, a penchant, as we've often noted, that Harry resented himself. Many Order members could help. Molly and Arthur, as she says here, have a right to know what their child is up to, as well as the boy they helped raise. He looks into her eyes, which are the same shade of brown as Ginny's. And wants to fuck her. No, wait, no. He thinks this did not help. <laughs> the MILF strikes again. The MILF, this is a real MILF moment. This in is this, a iconic MILF moment. Like legitimate, actual canon MILF moment. <laughs> <in this. laughs> but he sticks to the party line. Dumbledore didn't want anyone else to know. She asks next why Harry's to do it all, saying he must have misunderstood. The whole order is here, he tells her sadly, that he didn't misunderstand. How could he have misunderstood something that cost him so much to find so much about his life? It's got to be me, he says. There's that got to phrasing Uh again. Molly isn't going to give up easily. Failing to get any info out of them or convince them to abandon this mission, she sets to keeping them so occupied with wedding prep that they have no opportunity to plan or even really speak or think. All the jobs that she's dispensing keep Harry, Ron, and Hermione apart. And one night, Ginny mentions that she believes Mrs. Weasley is, in fact, attempting a cunning game of clock management that would make Andy Reid salivate with longing. (laughs) And without thinking, he says in reply, and then what does she think's going to happen? Someone else might kill off Voldemort while she's holding us here, making... (laughs) Love it. So it's true, Ginny says, that's what you're trying to do. Now, on the one hand... What else could any of them think is happening? Honestly, like what yeah, else come on, it's not that could this be about? It's not like rocket science. That's what this whole war effort is yes. about. Stopping Voldemort. And they all know that Voldemort is targeting 
Harry directly, how linked these two are. But on the other hand, it's not exactly easy or normal to wrap one's head around your 16-year-old boyfriend or adopted son or former student or whatever role Harry occupies for each of them. Yes. Setting off to try to nearly single-handedly take down the most evil wizard who ever lived. Hearing it is something different. And Harry tries to hand wave this off as a joke. Quote, this is a great one. (laughs) They stared at each other, and there was something more than shock in Ginny's expression. Oh, yeah, there was. (laughs) Suddenly, Harry became aware that this was the first time that he had been alone with her since those stolen hours in secluded corners of the Hogwarts Mm. grounds. He was sure she was remembering them, too. His wand just does stuff instinctively. (laughs) It happens sometimes, as Arthur has told people. Hermione pointed that out as well. These happy, groin-tingling remembrances are interrupted by the entrance of others. As is so often the case these days, the burrow is headquarters now because Dumbledore's death made everyone to whom Dumbledore had confided Mm -hmm. 12 Grimald Place's location a secret keeper in turn. That's around 20 chances for someone to fuck them or fall prey to the Death Eater's torture. Harry asks about Snape ratting them out, and we learn that Mad-Eye set up extra defenses against him entering or spreading this word. This ultimately will allow Harry, Ron, and Hermione to use the house as a hideout when they're on the run until Yaxley's brought into the secret when their ministry exit goes awry. Harry, who's focused on his task, but also a walking, throbbing, vein-pulsating boner, winds up next to Ginny at the night's crowded dinner and is so worried about spontaneously uh, ejaculating that he's trying to avoid brushing her arm. He's literally like, if her elbow touches mine, I will. You got to say, like, when you're that age, those boners could fucking crack diamonds. It's an odd mix with this his lust, but he asks about Moody's body, which is tough tough transition. This is Harry's version of like thinking about baseball highlights when you're trying to last longer in bed. Again, (laughs) really capturing the vibe of those years, which is just like a lot of overwhelming feelings and thoughts Mm -hmm. that you're just trying to figure out how to process for the first time. So he asks about Moody's body, which they've been unable to find, thus preventing them from holding a proper funeral. The prophet, of course, has not reported his death. And the ministry, it seems, is also hushing up the news of the mass Azkaban breakout, not wanting the public to know just how bad things have gotten. Where have we seen the ministry act like this before? Corn might as well be minister right yeah. now. As Harry grips his cutlery in fury, he sees the words, I must not tell lies on his hand. A nice reminder of Umbridge's foul play before she enters the story once again. Fleur shifts the topic to wedding prep, reminding Harry that he'll need a disguise and hinting with no subtlety whatsoever that they can't risk someone, cough, cough, Hagrid, letting slip that he's around. Fleur has really beaten the Hagrid drum hard still. Then Molly asks Ron to clean his room, and he loses it. Why in the name of Merlin, Saggy left? Yes, go on, Ronald. Saggy left what? Molly won't let Harry help Ron with the room either. Harry's off to muck chickens. With Arthur. Only there's nothing to muck. Because Arthur is fiddling with the remnants of Sirius's bike, which Ted Tonks apparently sent over. Arthur says, I'm hiding, that's to say, keeping it here. When Harry then goes up to Ron's room, Hermione is in there too, sorting books. Finally, they're able to chat. Finally, they're together. Ron floats. The maybe Mad-Eye Moody survived. And when Harry and Hermione both note the myriad reasons that can't be so, he says, well, all right, if you want him to be dead. Okay, this is a tough look for Ron. 
Of course, they do not want Mad-Eye Moody to be dead, but they're all trying to cope in their own ways, and processing and discussing this kind of pain isn't easy, even for people who have suffered as much as they have. When Harry floats that the Death Eaters probably transfigured and hid Moody's body, like Barty Crouch, Hermione bursts into tears, and before Harry can comfort her, Ron rushes over to her side, putting one arm around her and using the other to pull out a, quote, revolting-looking handkerchief, which you do (laughs) instantly think here he might be using... For masturbation, before the next line then clarifies it's covered with oven grease. Thank God. He siphons off the grease with the handy spell, Tergio. Ron soothes Hermione with newfound wisdom, asking her to recall Moody's catchphrase, constant vigilance, and saying rightly that Moody would want them to learn from his death. After a brief ensuing encounter with the monster book of monsters, he asks what all the books Hermione's stacking are for. Horcrux hunting, of course. Oh, of course, said Ron, clapping a hand to his forehead. I forgot. (laughs) We'll be hunting down Voldemort in a mobile library. (laughs) The brief comedic relief gives way to Harry's latest plea for them to stay behind, return to school, seek safety as he goes it alone. And it is, as they note, an almost painfully on-brand final push from Harry. And when he tries again, Hermione shuts him down with a show of friendship so forceful that it would have siphoned the grease off Ron's handkerchief. No, Harry, she says. You listen. We're coming with you. That was decided months ago. Years, really. He asks them if they're sure they've thought this through. Hermione starts to list off the proof. She's been packing for days so they can flee in an instant. Which, for your information, is including doing some pretty difficult magic. Flex, girl! Her Mary Poppins bag is going to be something to behold. I need one of these, by the way. incredible. I would just fill it with candy. Don't let me have one of these. (laughs) She swiped Mad-Eye's polyjuice from under Molly's nose, and that will prove imperative for them on many missions. And then the hammer. I've also modified my parents' memories so that they're convinced they're really called Wendell and Monica Wilkins. They've moved to Australia so that it's harder for Voldemort to find them and leverage them against Hermione and thus Harry or get information out of them. Assuming I survive our hunt for the Horcruxes, I'll find Mum and Dad and lift the enchantment. If I don't, well, I think I've cast a good enough charm to keep them safe and happy. Wendell and Monica Wilkins don't know that they've got a daughter, you see. Which is... Devastating. <laughs> really tough. Awful. Ron comforts Hermione again, frowning at Harry, who spits out an apology that can't adequately convey how this news hits him. Harry's been so focused on not leading his friends to lose anything that he hasn't realized how much they've already given up, how much they've already sacrificed for him, and not in the ways he fears his friends will have to pay for what he's done. In a fashion that shows they're as invested in this as he is, that they're willing to do whatever is necessary to commit fully to this cause, Hermione magicked herself from her parents' minds. Harry's not asking her or Ron to pay this kind of price. They're paying it willingly. But that doesn't make the cost easier to bear. Ron's been busy, too. He takes Harry to the attic, where a sucking and moaning sound meets their ears. And Harry's like, please don't ruin sucking and moaning sounds for me. I was just reminiscing about my time by the lake with Ginny. (laughs) Harry realizes it's the ghoul, who smells like, quote, open drains. It's also wearing Ron's pajamas and sporting some dope red hair and some less dope pustules. He's Mm. me, see, Ron says. (laughs) They leave to escape the stench, and Ron, back in his bedroom, tells Harry that the ghoul will be moving into Ron's room and impersonating him while they're on the road to cover up Ron's absence from Hogwarts. If the Death Eaters know Ron's on the road with Harry, they're bound to torture his family relentlessly. But if they think Ron's home was Spattergroit, thanks for the idea, super bully portrait at St. Mungo's, they're not going to investigate too closely given how contagious the disease is, and if they can't investigate, they might just buy it. They're hoping the Death Eaters will think Hermione, meanwhile, like many Muggleborns, has gone into hiding with her family. As Ron watches Hermione sort the books, 
Harry watches them both, quote, unable to say anything. The measures they had taken to protect their families made him realize more than anything else could have that they were going to come with him and that they knew exactly how dangerous that would be. This was really sweet. He wanted to tell them what that meant to him, but he simply could not find words important enough. This line really matters because it reminds us that Harry's constant protestations don't come from a lack of gratitude or affection or even a lack of desire for their presence. He wants his friends by his side. It's just that more than anything, he wants them to be safe. He doesn't want them to have to pay the cost. Hermione broaches where they should go first, trying to talk him out of Godric's Hollow. From the book, he had a strong, though inexplicable, feeling that the place held answers for him. And he's right. Yes. Hermione, though, notes it's likely that Voldemort's keeping watch there, expecting Harry to go to visit his parents' graves once he's of age. From the book, this had not occurred to Harry. Ron interrupts with a new thought. What if R.I.B. really did destroy the locket? Hermione points out the rub. They'll need to find it either way to confirm that that is the case. And when they do, how to destroy it. Hermione's been doing some research on that subject. Dumbledore removed the books from the library, but he didn't destroy them. She found them with a summoning charm, and they zoomed to her from Dumbledore's study, where apparently they had been lying in wait. She pulls out Secrets of the Darkest Art, which gives, quote, explicit instructions on how to make a horcrux. (sighs) She posits that if Dumbledore only removed it later, Tom Riddle would have been able to learn the technique from this very book. Mm -hmm. Remember, Tom asked Slughorn about making many horcruxes, not about just making one. From the book, Dumbledore was sure Riddle already knew how to make a horcrux by the time he asked Slughorn about them. Mm -hmm. Hermione notes that the book explains how unstable you make your soul by ripping it just the one time. And she can't believe he made six, seven. Harry thinks upon hearing this about Dumbledore's comments about Voldemort, quote, moving beyond usual evil. Ron asks if there's any way to put your soul, yourself, back together. Hermione says yes, quote, but it's excruciatingly painful. Harry asks how. Hermione continues, remorse. You've got to really feel what you've done. There's a footnote. Apparently the pain of it can destroy you. I can't see Voldemort attempting it somehow. Can you? In their final battle, as they circle each other at Hogwarts, Harry will give Riddle this one last chance. Try, he'll say. Try for some remorse. Think as well of some of the other times that we hear this word in this book. From Dumbledore to Snape in The Prince's Tale, an utterance that triggers Snape's redemption. And from Dumbledore to Harry in King's Cross about Grindelwald. Quote, they say he showed remorse in later years, alone in his cell. It's no accident that we see this word associated so often with Dumbledore, who felt such remorse himself. Harry asks if the books say how to destroy Horcrux too, and yes, they do. But it's presented not as an instruction manual, but as a cautionary tale meant to guide dark wizards in how to craft maximum protections. She says that from all she's read, what Harry did to the diary is, quote, one of the few really foolproof ways of destroying a horcrux. It doesn't have to be a basilisk thing, she clarifies. Quote, it has to be something so destructive that the horcrux can't repair itself. It, like George's ear, must be put, quote, beyond magical repair. When Ron asks why the bit of soul in the Horcrux couldn't then just go live somewhere else, Hermione says tantalizingly, because a Horcrux is the complete opposite of a human being. She explains that if she ran Ron through with the sword, great sort of Gryffindor as Horcrux Slayer foreshadowing here, by the way, his body would break, but his soul would remain unharmed. It's the other way around with Horcruxes. Quote, the fragment of soul inside it depends on its container, its enchanted body for survival. It can't exist without it. It's unstable, torn, ripped, 
unnatural and able to stand on its own. And Harry recalls hearing this, how the diary, quote, sort of died when he stabbed it, ink pouring out, screams piercing the air. And then Ron, reminded of the diary, asked how the bit of soul inside it was able to possess Ginny. Now, while we know from Dumbledore that the diary was always intended to be used differently than the other Horcruxes, mm-hmm. as weapon as much as safeguard, this is a really good question from Ron, and one that presages the way the locket will eat away at his heart and infect his mind. Hermione says that as long as the container is intact, quote, the bit of soul inside it can flit in and out of someone if they get too close. This also explains part of how Nagini and Harry have shared a mind before, even though Nagini is a Horcrux, and obviously Harry is too. And it's not closeness physically. It's close emotionally, Hermione clarifies. Like Ginny in the diary or Harry and Voldemort in Nagini's mind. Keep in mind what the locket will say to Ron. I have seen your heart, and it is mine. Harry naturally finds himself wondering how Dumbledore destroyed the ring and is maddened with himself for not asking, lamenting anew how many things he failed to learn from the headmaster. In time, we will learn that Dumbledore used the sword of Gryffindor, imbibed thanks to Harry using the sword to slay the basilisk, with the basilisk venom that can wound a horcrux beyond magical repair. Those fangs, too, will come back into play when Ron and Hermione enter the Chamber of Secrets to get them and destroy the cup. When the Delacours arrive, the burrow is tidier than ever. There are now so many security measures in place. Are you watching this, makers of Half-Blood Bread's movie? There are now so many security measures in place, it's no longer possible to travel directly into the house by magic. Hope they have set up also a wedding shuttle service. Arthur's under Madame Delacour's spell. But Monsieur Delacour is kind of a basic dude, but good-natured. She apparently is also good-looking enough for both of them. Gabrielle, a.k.a. Mini Fleur, bats her 11-year-old eyes at Harry and Ginny and clears her throat in jealousy. The whole family is a charming delight, though the house is packed to bursting. Fleur is bunking with Gabby, Bill with Charlie. We have to wonder, are these two meeting up in the broom shed to— I mean, to why, keep, it out at night? why keep Bill and Fleur apart? I just kind of—well, I guess, like, <laughs> if it's the night before, I get it. But surely in the run-up, in the days before, you can't keep those two apart. And yet— As the final chores continue, Molly says, I must say, it does complicate organizing a wedding, having all these security spells around the place. Harry apologizes humbly, and Molly tells him that, of course, his safety matters most, and she means it. But she meant the first part, too. Taxes all around. She asks him what he wants for his birthday, and he says, please, just no more fuss. They agree to invite Lupin, Tonks, and Hagrid for dinner. From the book, she looked at him, a long, searching look, then smiled a little sadly, straightened up, and walked away. As she goes... From the book again, he felt a great wave of remorse for the inconvenience and pain he was giving her. Mal, under here is where I used to podcast. You never knew me then, blimey. So small I'd forgotten. (laughs) So please help us remember. Please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to help us honor our good friend Hedwig. Yes. By teaching us what we need to know about owls. Protect Hedwig! From the very beginning of the tale of Harry Potter, from the early pages of Sorcerer's Stone, owls act as a strong symbol of magical activity. They swoop and fly through the daytime sky in the chapter, The Boy Who Lived, signaling to muggle weathermen that something strange has happened in the country. Hosts of owls bring hosts of letters to the Dursley home to try to let Harry know that he's a wizard. And when Harry visits Diagon Alley for the first time, he leaves with a pet owl, Hedwig, our Bobby, our darling Hedwig, who then accompanies him through his Hogwarts career. 
In the movies, the main tune is even titled Hedwig's Theme. But owls aren't just symbols. They're damn useful creatures, too, who rank among the most omnipresent in the wizarding world. More than flu conversations or enchanted mirrors or other more obscure methods, owls are the most common means of communication for magical people worldwide. And virtually every owl seen in nature is employed in some form or another by wizard kind, whether as carriers for their nation's outpost service or as messengers for individuals or families. Trained owls are expensive, so most families get by with just one that they share. Errol's listening to this and is like, you're fucking right. They couldn't bring Hermes in any sooner? <laughs> Little relief? Pigwidgeon, I've just been waiting on you. Or else they make use of the state-run owl program. In Britain, owls deliver the daily profit and all of Rita's filth contained therein. <laughs> I mean, listen. Life and Lies Owl Bastogne Lord is a lot of fact in there. <laughs> it's concerning but true. <laughs> as well as all mail to Hogwarts. They also delivered interdepartmental memos inside the Ministry of Magic for a time before being replaced after causing too much of a mess. Too much poop. Owls, after all, must poop. Cannot vanish their own droppings. Wizards, not great with poop stuff. (laughs) The mess was unbelievable. But owls can engage with forms of magic that mere humans cannot. Mainly, Owls used by wizards understand intuitively the connection between a person and their name. According to a Pottermore post written by J.K. Rowling, this process, quote, remains mysterious even to those who train up owlets. Owlets. To become wizarding pets or postal owls. But it, quote, enables the owls to trace the witch or wizard concerned wherever he or she may be. An owl does not need to know an address, although witches and wizards generally add the place to the envelope on the off chance that the owl is intercepted and the letter falls into other hands. There are two explanations for how owls have this ability. The first is that they're simply innately well-suited for magical influence, as opposed to, say, pigs, which rolling singles out as distinctly unmagical creatures. Uh, No shock that Dudley got a pig's tail, I guess. And the second is that the domestication of their ancestors led to inherited traits that prove conducive to this process. Either way, this means that owls are fluid trackers, indefatigable flyers, and generally nocturnal animals, making them a perfect combination of traits wizards would seek in messengers. Witches or wizards who don't want to be found, meanwhile, can employ a variety of masking spells to hide from the outpost, and they have options and nuance. They can avoid letters sent by a specific individual or owl, I guess this is the muting on Twitter or the blocking on Twitter of Outpost. <laughs> Thank God that feature exists. <laughs> or they can avoid all correspondence entirely. Or they can avoid all mail except that which comes from a specific owl. We should only communicate by owl today this in, this, in this society right now. I would love it. I would love it too. This latter method is presumably how Sirius Black, RIP to our guy, remained abreast of Harry's news without also subjecting himself to discovery from less friendly eyes and ears. Rowling made owls a centerpiece of her magical world because of a lifelong fascination. Love it. She writes on Pottermore, which, quote, long predates the first idea for Harry Potter. I trace it to a cuddly owl toy that my mother made me when I was six or seven, which I adored. That is so sweet. What a truly beautiful insight into how Hedwig came into this story. That is wonderful. Rowling did make a 
couple of small mistakes, though, particularly Uh with Hedwig. Snowy owls fly by day rather than night, and they're mostly mute. So Hedwig's frequent hoots and frustrated harumphs, looking at you, fucking Harry McGuy, snatching food right out of her mouth, are fictional liberties. But really, like, let her eat the toad. Just let her finish the frog. This is... I'd say of everything that has really stuck with Jason during binge mode, yeah, the, the frog is top yeah, I five. mean, that was unnecessary. <laughs> How long is it going to take you to eat the frog? <laughs> 45 seconds? A minute? <laughs> also, rolling jokes. Love that she owns this stuff. So, yeah. so charming. Quote, as countless well-meaning owl lovers and experts kept writing to me in the early days, owls do not eat bacon. I feel like Hedwig would have appreciated bacon, it's, though, sincerely. Bacon is, I'm fine with that. delicious. Owls were probably not magical in real life either, but hey, who knows? They might be. It's fun to think so. Even beyond the world of Harry Potter, owls have been regularly connected with magic and stories. So Rowling might have been onto something here. We might be ignorant muggles after all. And our superstitions about owls might be influenced by magic in the first place. As Rowling writes in the world of her story, the idea that it's unlucky to see owls flying by day actually has the causal relationship backwards. Usually, if news is so urgent that it requires wizards to, quote, break cover to send messages by day, something dramatic must be afoot in the magical world. Yes. Muggles may subsequently experience the unpleasant aftershocks without any idea of their cause. Jason, the seven is a useful segment, but the Death Eaters seem to think it is your signature section. And I urge you not to let it become so. Still, let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Deathly Hallows chapters four through six. Seven remains the most powerfully magical number. I'll go first. Number one. Hermione's line about souls and swords and horcruxes is more interesting than ever in light of a recent reveal. Remember, she says, quote, a horcrux is the complete opposite of a human being. Look, if I picked up a sword right now, Ron, and ran you through with it, I wouldn't damage your soul at all. Whatever happens to your body, your soul will survive untouched. But it's the other way around with the horcrux. The fragment of soul inside it depends on its container, its enchanted body for survival. It can't exist without it. We must wonder, then, what this means for Nagini, who we learned from the final Fantastic Beast: The Crimes of Grindelwald trailer, Mm. was a human being, a woman before she became a snake, but was also herself a horcrux. Will the Beast series help us explore this unique phenomenon? We can only hope. Number two. In case anyone was worried, Rowling confirmed in a 2007 Bloomsbury chat shortly after the book's release that Hermione was able to bring her parents home right away. I was worried. Yeah, I mean, it's concerning. Further, Rowling clarified this wasn't a true memory charm Hermione performed, but rather she bewitched her parents to make them believe they were different people. So, quote, restoring their correct memories, was far easier than if she'd actually used Obliviate to wipe them out in the first place. Thank God. Yeah. Number three. Some notes about the books that Hermione looks at in Chapter 6. First of all, she tosses defensive magical theory onto the rubbish pile, quote, without a second glance, which makes perfect sense because that is the book that Umbridge made them read in the fifth year. Useless. However, Hermione, quote, pours indecisively over Break with a Banshee, and though she puts it in the discard pile, still owns Travels with Trolls, which suggests that she might still be harboring a bit of a flame for Gilderoy Lockhart, the author of those tomes. Hermione also agonizes over Spellman's syllabary and says, quote, I wonder, will we need to translate runes? It's possible. I think we'd better take it to be safe. It turns out that this book will come in 
quite handy when Hermione tries to investigate the symbol of the Deathly Hallows and cannot find it in this book, thus signifying that it, in fact, has significant importance and must be a real clue from Dumbledore. Number four, when our trio discusses Moody's missing body, they wonder if perhaps the Death Eaters found it. We will learn in a few chapters that his magical eye wound up in the possession of none other than Dolores Umbridge, who affixes it to her office door. Harry steals the eye, buries it, avenging and honoring Moody in this small way. Fucking Umbridge. Number five, we must pour one out for poor Andromeda Tonks, who is rightly very concerned about her daughter's safety in this stretch of chapters. She will end up losing both her daughter and her husband over the course of this book. Ted murdered while on the run. Tonks killed alongside Remus at the Battle of Hogwarts. The only solace for Andromeda is that before Tonks and Remus died, their son, Teddy Lupin, entered the world. Number six. If Ron's comforting braces and handkerchief assist with Hermione seem like new moves for our dude, that's because they are. We'll soon learn that he's been studying up on how to lock that thing down by reading 12 fail-safe ways to charm witches, an indispensable guide in his mind that he'll share with Harry soon. Number seven, when everyone is changing into their Harry disguises, Ron says, quote, I knew Ginny was lying about that tattoo. Referring, of course, to the chest tat rumor referenced in Half-Blood Prince. Genuine, wait, what moment here? Harry and Ron are roommates at a boarding school. Yeah. They have shared a bedroom for six years, a changing room for Quidditch, bathrooms. Ron has never seen Harry with his shirt off? Uh, Perhaps more evidence that Harry does not bathe? Mal, haven't got any brandy, have you? Maybe I'll ask today's champion. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. Hagrid. I mean, he was incredible. Hagrid. Hagrid. He's entrusted and tasked with accompanying Harry in the motorbike for the Seven Potters mission, a wonderful bookend to the way this story started. The poetry and symbolism of yes. that bookend nature is truly wonderful and heartwarming. During the actual mission, Hagrid outmaneuvers many Death Eaters. Many. Somewhat successfully employing the new Mario Kart functions that love, Arthur installed on Sirius's motorbike, all the while ignoring Harry's impassioned plea to head back, which was not an easy call. But Hagrid rightly prioritized the mission despite the heart-wrenching circumstance. When Harry is endangered by a Death Eater, Hagrid goes all John Wick and jumps <laughs> off the motorbike and physically subdues the would-be spellcaster, valiantly risking his own life to protect Harry. Incredible Literally jumps Incredible. just into open air it's to do this. It's, it's incredible really incredible. Moment. And no one outside of Fleur really suspects mm. that Hagrid is the one who slipped up and let information slide yeah, out there. You know how Fleur be. <laughs> Fleur always just casting aspersions on everyone. Even the possibility that this might have been what happened just brings out Harry's love even more. It's a testament to how beloved and trusted Hagrid is among his peers, especially by Harry, who defends him with a rousing speech. Yeah. Beautiful. Shouts to Hagrid. Shouts to him. Well, friends. Once we've left, Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, are going to come and live down in our podcast studio. We think they're really looking forward to it. Well, it's hard to tell, because all they can do is moan and drool, but they nod a lot when we mention it. <laughs> <laughs> we hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again next time when we will be discussing chapter 7 and 8 of Deathly Hallows. Until then, remember, 
The last words Albus Dumbledore spoke to the pair of us. Binge mode is the best hope we have. Trust it. Somebody must have been careless. Somebody let slip the date to an outsider. Is the only explanation for them knowing the date, but not the old plan. No! Harry, what the f- I mean, listen! <laughs> if you only made a mistake, it's not that fault! Okay? Harry, cop- I mean, you gotta trust each other! Don't take this from me, I'm not done! I trust all of you! I don't think anyone in this room Tell me to Voldemort! Get your hands off me, Molly! I will not stop! I ain't got a bread. <laughs> <laughs>